Big Year Podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Podcast is a recovery podcast about making this year your big year to embrace your freedom from alcohol and tear down the limits you put on yourself. Hello, all you beautiful people out there in the dark. This is DB coming at you with a very short episode today as I am back in the States for a few weeks due to family obligations relating to the recent. Uh, death of my father. Uh, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves, because uh, instead of the new and exciting and fresh one-hour episode we usually do, where we go into depth on feelings and what sober life is like, uh, we'll be doing a format change for the weeks while I'm away, keeping it quick, uh, keeping it shortish. So today's uh, episode is only focused on one thing, and that one thing is the top 10 films that'll make you swear off booze forever. Okay. Um, Also, you might notice the recording quality is a lot different. I'm recording on my shitty phone. Uh, I brought, I actually thought I had and brought a decent podcast microphone with me on my trip back home, but... Unfortunately for all of us, um, I couldn't. I couldn't get it to work with the right programs. With this, I just don't have my setup, so it's not a. You know, just bear with me here, okay? Top ten films that'll make you swear off booze forever, uh, and these are in no particular order. Just so you know, okay. Number one, The Lost Weekend. This is one of my favorite uh, films in general, I mean, in life in general. But uh, from Wikipedia, I'll give you the short synopsis here. Why write it myself when they've written it better? Um, uh, the Lost Weekend is 1945 American film directed by Billy Wilder, starring Ray Milland and Jane Wyman based on Charles R. Jackson's novel of the same name, about an alcoholic writer. Uh, Nominated for seven Academy Awards and won four Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Look, um, I am a Billy Wilder freak, okay? To me, uh, Some Like It Hot is the greatest comedic film of all time. Uh, the director and writer, Billy Wilder, fantastic. Um, this film in particular is is a bit of a rough ride compared to some of Wilder's more, more famous films, famous-er films. Um, I found another nice synopsis of it online, and and I'll rip it off here for you. Writer Don Burnham, played by Ray Milland, is on the wagon at the beginning of the film, at least. 
Sober for only a few days, Don is supposed to be spending the weekend with his brother, Wick. But, eager for a drink, Don convinces his girlfriend, Jane Wyman, to take Wick to a show. Don, meanwhile, heads to his local bar and misses the train out of town. After recounting to the bartender how he developed a drinking problem, Don goes on a weekend-long bender that just might prove to be his last. Um, there's a sequence, or several sequences, uh, with the main character in this film, Don, played by Ray Milland, uh, hiding a bottle around the house. Um, it may occur multiple times in the film. I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I thought that was pretty entertaining and true to life. Uh, a lot of bottle hiding action in this, and a lot of, you know, the obsession, basically, like... I think he buys two bottles of whiskey right off the rip just in case he runs out. Uh, there's a lot of hiding bottles, a lot of Miland uh, falling over, passing out, staggering around. A very memorable scene with a fake bat that is probably worth the price of the ticket. Um, it's a hallucination that he has. Uh, the, the film is a little corny, even for its time, I think. Or maybe not for its time, but to me, um, what do you think? I, I think real alcoholics will find something familiar in the film. Um, they do say at one of the first screenings of the film, the audience was laughing at the, uh, quote-unquote overwrought performance of Ray Milland, and he does play it a little, uh, loose, I could say, but... It's still a great film, and uh, the film was a critical smash when it came out. I had mentioned it won for uh, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, and there's a note in the Wikipedia article for this, actually, that says, The liquor industry launched a campaign to undermine the film even before its release. Allied Liquor Industries a national trade organization, wrote an open letter to Paramount warning that anti-drinking groups would use the film to reinstate prohibition. Liquor interests allegedly enlisted gangster Frank Costello to offer Paramount $5 million to buy the film's negative in order to burn it. Wilder, the director, quipped that if they'd offered him $5 million, he would have burned the negative, okay? So that's, that's, uh, that's that. That's our first movie, The Lost Weekend. Okay. Number two, The Days of Wine and Roses. Uh, the Days of Wine and Roses is a 1962 American drama film directed by Blake Edwards, uh, starring Jack Lemmon and Lee Remick. Lee Remick being a, a, a woman, an actress. I think they do just still call them actors nowadays. Uh, the film depicts the downward spiral of two average Americans who succumb to alcoholism and attempt to deal with their problems. Um, I really, really like this movie. I think this movie is a little classier than the previous film, uh, Lost Weekend, um, that I was talking about. 
it's just i mean jack lemon is a is a class act in general and pretty much anything jack lemon is in is going to be good um this movie is notable because uh actually i believe uh Jack Lemmon is helped by a member of Alcoholics Anonymous to get sober within the film. Uh, and then his wife is still drinking. Uh, and she has this famous quote uh, that I really like. Uh, says, uh, the world looks so dirty to me when I'm not drinking. And that quote really, really speaks to me. I remember that kind of paranoia slash psychosis uh that the world actually did seem almost like a living nightmare if i wasn't if i wasn't drinking um when you let it get so far so uh i i think that's a wonderful uh real true to life part of the movie um it also they also have a kid together, the couple, uh, Kirsten and Joe, Jack Lemon and Lee Remick and Jack Lemon. Uh, they have a kid together, and it, and the kid is kind of suffering a little bit, like um, it's just a deep movie, really. Some uh, job loss. Moving from place to place. Director Blake Edwards, uh, Wikipedia tells us that he became a non-drinker a year after completing the film and went into substance abuse recovery. Uh, he said that he and Jack Lemmon were heavy drinkers while making the film. Both Lemmon and Remick sought help from Alcoholics Anonymous after they had completed the film. It says long after, so who knows? Could be, could have been years. Uh, Lemon revealed to James Lipton, that guy from uh, Inside the Actor's Studio, you remember that show? Uh, his past drinking problems in his recovery. The film had a lasting effect in reinforcing the growing social acceptance of Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's pretty interesting. All right. Let's get on to uh, number three, Long Day's Journey Into Night. 1962 American drama film directed by Sidney Lumet. Or do we say Lumet? I'm going to just go with Lumet. Uh, it was adapted from Eugene O'Neill's Pulitzer Prize winning play of the same name. Uh, it's got Catherine, Catherine Hepburn, Ralph Richardson... Jason Robards, and Dean Stockwell. The story de deals with themes of addiction and the resulting dysfunction of the nuclear family and is drawn from O'Neill's own experiences. Uh, the film won Best Actor for Richardson, Best Actress for Hepburn at uh, Cannes Film Festival. And uh, I believe she got an... Yeah, she got the Oscar there. Um, this movie... I, I I don't know how to 
quite explain it. An exercise in patheticness. The movie's pathetic. Okay, the people in it are pathetic. They're drinking all the time. Uh, they fight like crazy. They're all suffering horribly because of their addictions and their inability to... I don't know, make anything out of, make anything good out of their lives, in a way. A lot of internal demons on display here. Um, like a couple other movies on this list, this, this movie might be a trigger for a lot of people. Because they do drink throughout the film and seem to be having fun in a way. And because there's talking uh, all intellectually and everything, uh, you know, one could get into the spirit, I guess. Uh, but at the end of the film, I mean, I don't know how you can sit through the movie without thinking that these people are just horrifically pathetic. Uh, and it's a kind of a depressing movie. Um, but yeah, I haven't seen it in a few years, but I do remember that I enjoyed it quite a bit when I saw it, but it made me want to, uh, pour out all my booze. Um, as a warning on all of these movies, I don't know if they'll make you want to pour out your booze. They do for me. So, all right. Number four, Star is Born. The 2018 version with uh, Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga, uh, in a movie that has been made a total of four times now. There are four films called A Star is Born, all the way back to, I believe, the 30s. Um, and here's a synopsis I jacked from the internet because I'm just that kind of guy. Uh, Cooper plays seasoned musician Jackson Maine, who discovers and falls in love with struggling artist Allie. Okay. Allie has just about given up on her dream to make it big as a singer until Jackson coaxes her into the spotlight. Even as Allie's career takes off, the personal side of their relationship is breaking down as Jackson fights an ongoing battle with his own internal demons. Uh, this film, to me, is a better version of the Chris Christopherson version that came before it. Uh, it's almost as if the director and star, uh, Mr. Bradley Cooper, had watched the Christopherson and uh, Barbara Streisand version uh, from the 70s and just said, you know, that was an almost good movie. That was almost a good movie. Um, I know how to make it better, and I'm going to make it better. Um, there's, because uh, the version with Chris Christopherson just doesn't quite hit. I've seen it twice, and it's just, it's not a bad movie, but it's definitely not a good movie. This movie is actually far superior, and I am a classicist in a way, in a, in a, I, you know, I'm known to prefer the original of everything the originals of everything, but this, this movie is definitely superior. Um, there's a lot of good old pathetic alcoholism in this, wasted talent, 
Um, like a lot of these movies, sometimes it almost feels like we're on the edge of glorifying the addiction. Like it almost looks like fun sometimes. Maybe if you're lost, like I was when I first saw this movie. But then we get a great scene like Bradley Cooper pissing himself on stage. I mean, what a terrific scene that was. Uh, spoiler alert, I guess. I'm sorry. But it's just, you know, to see that in a film, the in, the shame of alcoholism that, you know, that we have to deal with sometimes. Um, I, I saw this movie, and the first time I saw it, it felt like, uh, I don't know, like Titanic or Dirty Dancing or something that, to me, that, that someone could watch, you know, decades later, later. like it could get a re-release and be that kind of fan favorite film. Uh, and like Titanic, I, uh, it's not what I would consider terribly profound, uh, but damn if it isn't a crowd pleaser, okay? And in the end, you can't help but wonder how things might have turned out for old Jackson Mine if uh, Bradley Cooper's character hadn't been such a, a monstrous fuck-up. And uh, pretty good, accurate depiction of alcoholism in that one, as far as I can tell, in my opinion. Uh, number five, Flight, 2012, starring Denzel Washington, Nadine Velasquez. Oh, yeah. I should have looked that up before I recorded this, sorry. Don Cheadle and John Goodman uh, from IMDb. Uh, an airline pilot saves almost all his passengers on his malfunctioning airliner, which eventually crashes. But an investigation into the accident reveals something troubling. Uh, the grammar in that logline I just read is pretty bad, but let's see if I can explain why this film is so important and deserves inclusion on this list. Um... This movie goes heavy into the idea of the functioning alcoholic. Uh, Denzel plays the pilot here, and he and he just he's flying the plane, and he does this incredible maneuver to save the plane on everyone on board. You know, and this maneuver is something only an extremely skilled pilot would even attempt. But then later they have hearings and whatnot about like what happened on that day. It's a very realistic kind of film so they get into like hearings about the incident itself and we know that he's hiding the fact that he's on cocaine and he was drunk at the time uh, he had a dirty uh, toxicology report that was kind of uh, hushed up so the movie deals with this very heavy question of what exactly is functioning I mean, I remember watching this movie when I was drunk and just being so fucking angry that he was being put on trial. Like, just thinking, what matters is that he saved lives, you know. Screaming at the screen. Um, and now I'm not so sure. You know. I think it deserves a rewatch. Um, 
either way, you know, Denzel is excellent in this one, as usual. Uh, highly recommended. And, and really an adult movie in the way that it, it challenges people to uh, think about something a little deeper. And, and hopefully us alcoholics or ex-alcoholics uh, can think about what this might mean to us. You know, what is... When we were functioning, were we actually functioning? You know. Number six, The Lighthouse. <laughs> this is a weird pick. People might uh, disagree with me. Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson as two lighthouse keepers stuck in a lighthouse together in the late 1800s. They're full of resentments. They're full of power trips. And just... Add to that a generous amount of alcohol. And when the alcohol runs out, I think they start drinking turpentine or something like that. Uh, this is a film that is literally about alcoholic madness. Um, played excellently by both actors. Some very, very memorable scenes. And who would have thunk, I mean, that Robert Pattinson would be such a good actor... Uh, yes, the guy from Twilight, he's, he's great in a lot of movies. I mean, he's really kind of become a pretty big deal, and he is terrific in this movie. Just absolutely terrific. Watching this film sober is a delight. I, this was one that I had, have only seen sober. Uh, and I think ex-alcoholics or alcoholics can actually get more out of this film and people who don't, quote-unquote, get it, don't understand the sickness of alcoholism, so to speak, I think you could watch this movie and think it's not about alcoholism. Uh, though, you know, if you're paying attention while you watch it, booze is a very large factor, if not the factor, for the chaos, uh, in the chaos that ensues as as the movie progresses, so... Uh, check it out. I guarantee you won't forget it. And like a lot of the recommendations on here, it's not for the faint of heart. But this one shouldn't provoke you to drink. I mean, it is a little ridiculous. Uh, watch it and get back to me on that. Send me an email at bigyearpodcast.gmail.com and tell me what you think about the lighthouse. Um, number seven. The Shining, 1980, directed by Stanley Kubrick, one of the greatest directors of all time, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. Right. From Wikipedia, uh, this film's central character is Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, uh, an aspiring writer and recovering alcoholic who accepts a position as the off-season caretaker of the isolated historic Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies, with his wife, Wendy Torrance, played by Shelley Duvall, and young son, Danny Torrance, played by Danny Lloyd. Danny is gifted with psychic abilities named Shining, and after a winter storm leaves the Torrance's snowbound, Jack's sanity deteriorates due to the influence of the supernatural forces that inhabit the hotel. 
Obviously, this is one of the most famous horror films of all time. And for fans of the genre, it is, of course, considered a masterpiece. Uh, frankly, personally, it's my favorite horror film, hands down. Um, the key here and why I picked it for my list is honestly and uh, frighteningly, perhaps, I identify with the main character a little bit, being a writer myself, being an alcoholic. Uh, and Jack here isn't, isn't working the steps, okay? Um, he's in that horrible place between wanting a drink very badly and, and feeling and, or knowing that he shouldn't. Uh, and this being in that, that tense place between a drink, uh, between a rock and a hard place, um... And of course, along with the hotel and the evil entities that reside in the hotel, these are the things that provoke him to madness, basically. Uh, they reference a movie in the movie, uh, uh, a time when Jack was drinking too much and accidentally hurt his son by handling him too uh, roughly. He hurts his arm uh, or has hurt his arm before the movie starts. And this is a point of extreme guilt for him and something that torments him. And, and it seems clear in the film that he's made a sort of a promise to his wife. And when he breaks it, I mean, he fucking breaks it. Um, as a writer, I identify with the character due to the stress of writer's block and, and dealing with interruptions from his family and the, the fact that we often tie our writing to our sense of self-worth which maybe is the curse of, of Jack's curse in a way and uh, and further pr pushes the buttons of, of his struggle with alcohol. Um, when I was working on a screenplay a few years ago and heavily drinking, my wife and daughter had watched the movie with me and they both turned to me and said, uh, oh my God, that's you. Which they were kind of joking and they kind of weren't, um, and I should be horribly embarrassed about that. What's cool about being free from alcohol is I know how to set healthy and fair boundaries when it comes to writing work in the house, uh, and that's one of those benefits of, of freedom from alcohol that, honestly, I consider to be priceless, um, Another note, uh, Stephen King reportedly hates this movie, uh, angry that it was adapted incorrectly for the screen. I heard an interview with him the other day that said he, you know, he had written a horror novel and uh, Kubrick made an art film, you know. Uh, either way, um, the movie is its own thing. And if for some god-awful reason you're out there and you haven't seen it, and God forbid you're a horror fan and you haven't seen it, try and see it on the biggest screen you can. Not in 4K or HD or any of that digital bullshit where you can count the actor's nose hairs, you know. Just, um, just watch it on a nice big fat screen, okay? My name is Bill W. Number eight. My name is Bill W. From Wikipedia. My name is Bill W. 
1989 CBS Hallmark Hall of Fame made-for-television drama film starring James Woods, Joe Beth Williams, and James Garner. Uh, based on the true story of William Griffith Wilson and Robert Holbrook Smith, the men respectively called Bill W. and Dr. Bob, the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, and James Woods won an Emmy for his portrayal of Wilson. The movie details the true story of stockbroker William Griffith Wilson, a World War I veteran whose drinking problem becomes a serious addiction and causes him to lose his fortune in the stock market collapse of 1929. Wilson's career and his domestic life are in tatters when he meets Robert Holbrook Smith, also struggling with a drinking problem. The duo founded a support group that became the nucleus for the society Alcoholics Anonymous. Look, I like James Woods a lot, actually. I love him in two films especially. That would be uh, his starring role in Oliver Stone's uh, Salvador and Martin Scorsese's Casino, where he plays Sharon Stone's pimp boyfriend, Lester, I believe his name was. Uh, the guy can act, and he can act well. Um, he plays jumpy and coked up especially well. Um, here for this film, he did win an Emmy. I don't know if he deserved it. <laughs> I had to rewatch it, but it really, I swear, it did seem like some of the corniest acting I've ever seen in my entire life when I saw it last. It is a Hallmark movie. Uh, however, the story that this film tells is probably just about the most important story in the history of the temperance movement. I don't know. The fight against alcoholism. The founding of AA. It's an important flick. Uh, I, I recommend it to absolutely anyone who's even remotely interested in AA or recovery groups in general. These guys were pioneers. I mean, respect. Come on. Big ups uh, to the film. And, and actually, I think I'm going to head to the library this week since I'm in town and see if I can find it. Give it a rewatch. See if I can enjoy the performance of James Woods now that I'm alcohol-free in my life. Um, but yeah, I do enjoy the movie and I do like the story. It's uh, fascinating. Okay. Number nine. Leaving Las Vegas, 1995. Uh, all the trigger warnings for this uh, Nicolas Cage and Elizabeth Shue film. The harrowing and unbelievably bleak story of a man who is drinking himself to death in Las Vegas. Literally as suicide. Uh, and the hooker that falls in love with him for some reason tries to make his last days livable in a sort of way and and that's it that's the story um this actually used to be one of my favorite movies while i was drinking and i felt that i that i could wallow in this kind of this kind of uh existence when i watched it and and really at, at some points i wanted to die like him 
Um, I had a friend back in the day, and we used to joke that, you know, okay, we're off to Las Vegas to drink ourselves to death, basically. Um, I think in the film they could have made him yellower. Dying from liver failure is actually worse than they depict it here. Um, I actually haven't seen this film in sobriety, and I'm not sure if I actually want to, considering in every single scene Cage is drinking something, and he's a very likable guy. So, uh, why likable in the movie? Uh, why include it on this list? Uh, I think it's a movie that bears examining... Um, really, it almost seems to want to romanticize his life in a... Well, not really. At the end of the day, he is pathetic. And, and, and that's what's so powerful in the film. Uh, when his boss lets him go, uh, when the agents, he's got some old agent buddies, uh, one of them played by Richard Lewis, who is an alcoholic in real life himself, recovered, uh, in a, and a star of his own movie about drinking and sobriety called Drunks. I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, anyways, the, these agents, these Hollywood agents are embarrassed by his behavior, by Nicolas Cage's character's behavior, and that's, it's part of this just festival of, of patheticness, patheticism. Notice I've been messing around with this word all night, I, I, uh... anyways, it's not for those who aren't strong in their sobriety aren't strong in their sobriety. And maybe it's not though for those who are strong in their sobriety. I really don't know. Um, the circumstances surrounding this film are even more depressing than the film itself. The writer of the somewhat autobiographical book that the movie is based on, uh, John O'Brien, he committed suicide pretty soon after signing the deal for the film. I think around two weeks later... Um, I read the book when I was drinking all day, every day. Uh, the book is awful and depressing. I mean, it's well written. It's very depressing. Uh, John O'Brien's father says the book was actually his suicide note. And John O'Brien actually lived in Lakewood, Ohio, which I also did as a horrible alcoholic. So, you know, we're like kindred spirits in a way, except for... I'm alive, and I'm free. Free of the booze. Okay. Rest in peace, John O'Brien. Um, okay. Number 10, and this is going to be very debatable. I had a very hard time coming up with a number 10, but I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it. Mommy Dearest. Yeah. For those of you who have seen this movie, probably just laughed out loud in your car. Or wherever you're at right now. Um, let me let me read part of Roger Ebert's one-star review for this film. I can't imagine who would want to subject themselves to this movie. So how Roger Ebert starts his review. 
Mommy Dearest is a painful experience that drones on endlessly as Joan Crawford's relationship with her daughter, Christina, disintegrates from cruelty through jealousy into pathos. It's unremittingly depressing, not to any purpose of drama or entertainment, but just to depress. It left me feeling creepy. The movie was inspired, of course, by a best-selling memoir in which adopted daughter Christina Crawford portrayed her movie star mother as a grasping, sadistic, alcoholic wretch whose own insecurities and monstrous ego made life miserable for everyone around her. I have no idea if the book's portrait is an accurate one, but the movie is faithful to it in one key sense. It made life miserable for me. <laughs> Very funny, Ebert. Uh, yeah, Joan Crawford, the movie's about Joan Crawford and her daughter. Uh, it's really a hit piece on Joan Crawford, really tarnishes the old legacy. Apparently, Joan Crawford was an alcoholic, abusive wretch, and that really comes through in the movie. Uh, a lot of manic depression, a lot of craziness brought on by uh, alcohol abuse and mental illness. Um, so, you know, it, it's worth checking out. Um, a lot of people thought it was unintentionally funny, an unintentionally funny movie. Uh, there's some campiness to it. Uh, but trigger warnings to those who have suffered a lot of abuse in their life may hit a little too close to home. That's not supposed to be a pun. Uh, hit close to home. Okay. Um, yeah. So check that out. Uh, alcoholic parenting at its finest. Um, but that's my top ten. What do you think? Anything I missed? Something I forgot? Disagree with anything on the list? Give me an email at uh, bigyearpodcast at gmail.com. Send me some complaints. Whatever you like. Uh, we'll be back next week with another short episode. Uh, we will pick back up with the original format in May, on May 3rd. We'll be here next Wednesday night for some more of that bullshit. And remember, this is your big year. Be honest with yourself. Love yourself. Challenge yourself. 